The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 207 for Monday, June 15th, 2009. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. And over there is John Brown here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And yes, we are back in our normal locations. We're probably just sounding real sparkly and oh, whatever weird words I, you guys I, use. I but need, anyways, I need to tell you something, John. Yes. Uh, actually, I need to tell you two things. One, I am actually recording this show as far as I can tell. And number you, pr- you press the button. And number two. No, it's not your birthday. It's not not. my birthday, but it's our birthday. You mean the show's birthday? Yeah, I believe two days ago. I think it was June the 12th, if not the 13th. uh, We we celebrated or we passed four years in podcasting. Wow, that's that's like an eternity in podcasting. (laughs) It's good. Right. Yeah, we're still and we're still. It's it's certainly a milestone. Agreed. Great, and we so. couldn't do it without, I couldn't do it without you. You couldn't do it without me. We couldn't do it without Pilot P, but especially we couldn't do it without the listen listeners. and contribute and create uh, the awesome community that we have going here. I, so I thank you. Yeah. Thank, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, John. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Pilot Pete. Uh, and thanks to my family for, you know, putting up with me leaving every Monday night. So. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So we have a fairly normal show here. We, we are going to get uh, toward the end of the show. We're going to talk a little bit about cable modems and signal strength and all of that and and we'll explain why but uh when we get there uh, there was a an incident this week that led to us uh having an to incident that's right but for now to start to begin with and i'm i'm vamping here while i find hank's comment hank hank's email yeah and and here comes hank hank says i'm having a problem with mail in 10.5 in, in Mac OS 10, 10.5. I'm looking at an email that I believe is rich text. I don't even know if this is relevant. Hank, it is. I'm not sure how rich text might relate to HTML email, but the email I have is displayed without the graphics. They are one and the same. The location of the graphic is, is displaced by a frame. Within this frame is a smaller box, blue in color, containing a question mark. Clicking some of the question mark often takes you to a web page, so they are web links, while clicking on others is a no action. A button usually appears, but not always, within the email's window, saying something like, download images. When this is clicked, nothing changes in my email. That is, no graphics appear replacing the boxes. The button, however, disappears. There must be a setting that permits the graphics to load with the email, but I am unable to locate this setting. Okay, so the trick is, if you go into mail... And then click on the mail menu, which is just to the right of the Apple menu. Click on preferences. Click on viewing. Uh, In there is an option called display remote images in HTML messages. Enabling this should allow this behavior, uh, but only if the message is properly formatted and properly linked. Most rich text or HTML email is created properly and will display the images. But if somebody screws it up, uh, obviously, you know, mail's not... uh, not going to display it. It uses WebKit, right? Which is the framework that mm-hmm. Safari, that Safari uses to display web pages. So you've got all that uh, that engine under it. It is, you know, probably the best HTML engine in any email app on any platform. But oh. uh, 
but it, it you know, it, it's limited to properly formatted HTML or at least within some tolerances. So, Right. Now, that's interesting because um, I don't know if I mentioned it, but I'm going to mention it now. But um, the, so the client that I use uh, in the workplace is uh, either Entourage or Outlook uh, 2007, I think. Okay. And at least in both of them now, it either may be the default behavior or the way they configure it for use in the enterprise. But it will come up with those sort of messages and say, you know, there's an image here. I'm not going to download it. I'll put a placeholder here because I think this may hurt you, which it certainly could. If we're sure. talking about viruses and malware and stuff like that. Something purporting to be an image could introduce a security risk. So they show a placeholder, but if you click it, I think you may be able to set it permanently on a program level basis. You can certainly do it on a message level basis. You basically click and say, okay, load all the images. And then usually it makes the you know horrible looking email look normal uh, as it was intended. Right. Um, see, I know Outlook has that. I believe Entourage has that to some level as well. So it's probably a good thing because again, you can carry nasty stuff. I, I haven't heard of anything like that on the Mac. Really. Yeah, I was going to say more so on on the Windows side is this a threat than it is on the on the Mac side. The the one reason that I've found on the Mac or or any platform not to automatically display images in email is this. A lot of spammers what they'll do is they'll send out an HTML formatted email. And spammers often don't know if the email addresses are valid or if people open their email messages. Well, as soon as you open the message and it links to an image that's not embedded with the message, it's just a link to an image living on a server somewhere. Well, as soon as your mail client phones home to go and get that image, the person on the other end can, in most cases correctly, assume that you've actually opened that message and therefore it was delivered to a human. So when you see all those ads for enhancement products and drugs and this, that and the other thing, and you see an image start loading, you know, at that point, They've got me. Uh, yep. So. And they are known also, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this uh, slang for it, but they are, those are known as web bugs. Okay. Never heard a that. One but I'll by take one. It. Yeah. It's on Wikipedia and I've heard the term, but it's basically a one by one graphic, which obviously can display nothing. <laughs> right. Well, but it could just be it, those, big, meant, uh, those big Cialis ads too, right? I mean, it's the same thing. It doesn't have to be one by one, but it certainly could be. And that's the fast way of. Yeah. Yep. But the strategy here is that it's so inconsequential and in that it's a one by one image that you will never notice that it is being loaded. You will think it's a speck of dirt on your screen versus a big, huge, obvious, monstrous graphic, which if you don't load, you, you can assume they won't know you didn't load it. But these little things. Um, so, so it's a common trick to, right. uh, again, as you said, determine did anybody even look at this that's right which yep. then feeds their engine and then you get even more spam though you know I, I i gotta say i've noticed as of late that my spam both at work and at home uh probably through my, the both are isps but i don't get a lot through my spam filter now i don't know if you as you know or we as mac observer <laughs> you know how a lot of that stuff is is tossed before we get because I, I i don't really get any TMO spam from the TMO servers. So I said really? something cool there. Well, we're doing we're doing a couple things, but uh, blocking spam from known. Uh, we're using the real time blacklist there. But but then, no, I mean, there's plenty of spam that gets through and I use uh, um, D spam on the server to 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 filter it there. Huh. But that okay. that's only per account. And I don't think it's enabled for your account. So, yeah, yeah. but I get a lot of stuff 
you know, to, to my TMO account, which uh, now one could consider, you know, excessive press releases, maybe kind of spam. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, but that, we sort of signed up for that many years ago. <laughs> yes. Yes, we did. And yeah, you just got to learn to sort through that sort of yeah. thing. So anyways, moving on. Cool. All right. Well, Rick writes, how does one use a hard drive attached to an airport extreme as a backup disk when it does not seem to stay mounted? Anytime I reboot my machine, the mount point slash volume slash drive name is missing until I manually mount it using the finder. I want to use something like Carbon Copy Cloner to back up a folder to the extreme disk and set it to automatically run periodically. All right. You want to uh, you want to take this one, John? I want to start on this one because it really brings up something that really bugs the heck out of me is. um, So what you should be able to do uh, now, of course, you can mount a uh, network disk. You know, you go to a. uh, various methods through the let's, network let's browser or through. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk. Let's about solve his problem and then we'll and then we'll complain about the okay. issues. So one, of course, you can do is let's see, go um, connect the server. So that's one way to mount a, a network volume. You know, you do that from the desktop, and you can type in the the uh, the link, whether it be SMB or AFP or whatever, and that mounts a network volume. Of course, you can also see this in um, the but that won't that won't auto mount it. Right? No, of course not. No, okay. I'm, not, I'm just talking. Uh, I just want to start at the beginning and Got talk it. about ways to mount a network volume. So one is connect the server and explicitly type in a name. Another is to go to the shared tab, and if something's shared, it should show up there. But if it doesn't, then connect the server will definitely bring it up. Now the problem is once it's mounted, how do you deal with that so that you can repeat that behavior without having to type in it explicitly? And I think one way to do that, which you and I both found, Dave, I think, is that. It seems to be a lot harder than it should be, almost like a UI really you know, annoying feature or disfeature of the UI is that I think the only way we really found to do this. So, so of course, login items, which you access through system preferences and then uh, accounts and then login items that will let you not only now what you're probably going to see there already is applications that have already decided to put themselves there. And a lot of them make sense. Um, you know, I see things here, Snaps Pro, uh, Palm Desktop peripheral vision, uh, spam, uh, or smart reporter, a lot of other things. But you can put a disk alias in there, and I think that's one way is if you navigate once you've mounted a volume into the login items, then when you start up, uh, it will come up. It may prompt you to enter username and password, in which case, of course, you can say, well, put that in the keychain and remember that. And then that should consistently mount a volume to your desktop every time you uh, start up your machine. Yeah, that, w- that would do it. Uh, and I agree, that's, that's the... That 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 will work. I've done that here. I have my Drobo hanging off of a machine here on the network, and I nice. I have it connected, and it mounts on all my machines. Of course, it only mounts once I log in. Uh, doing it this way, login items are just that, right? You have to log into the machine, and then and then it's mounted. Now, many of us might auto log into our machines, but if you don't, just remember that the drive's not going to mount until you uh, until you've logged in. But it's not always that simple, John. Even when you oh. can see a disk, right, to mount it, right, to, to not to mount it, to put it in this login items tab, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we, we, were, we were experimenting a bit with this before, and there's some UI wackiness there. Uh, what you, you know, it would, it would seem that from the finder, you should be able to just drag, like an application, uh, you can take any application on your Mac and drag it into login items and it will appear there and stick there and launch the next time you launch your Mac unless you delete the application. But with a shared drive, that's not always possible. If you navigate uh, in the finder and and grab the disk, either 
uh, in, in navigation or maybe in the top bar of a finder window and try and drag it over. It does not always work. Uh, the only consistent way we found to do this was to go into system preferences, accounts, long at items, login items, hit the plus button and then go and navigate that way. Uh, that that's the only way we found it to work, I, I think. Right, John? And I seem to remember in past versions of OS 10 or maybe OS 9, but you could take a disk alias or shortcut or whatever you want to call it, drag it to the desktop and it's there. Now it shows up as an item of kind SharePoint. Mm, interesting. Just looking right now. So it's, it, it's a weird type in that it doesn't seem as flexible and somebody's going to tell us how, how we should be doing this properly. I think I stumbled on this once before. Yeah. Long, long ago. And I, I typically don't, you know, usually mount network volumes um, uh, on either of my machines, except the time capsule, which just kind of mounts itself. Yeah. I, I, I mount them fairly regularly because I've got a couple of machines here and it's interesting that the Drobo is the only one that I have auto mount. The rest uh, I'll go and mount through shared when I need to, but anything I mount through shared does not appear under my devices list. So I'm in Leopard 10.5 in the Finder. It does not appear under devices. Now, I can navigate to it via shared and, and find the disk, but it does not appear under devices. What's interesting, though, is if I go and select that disk and open it uh, by clicking on shared computer name and then disk, once the disk is there, it appears with its little icon in the top of the Finder window. From there, if I grab and you got to grab the icon, not the name, the name will move the window. But if you grab the icon itself, you can actually grab the whole thing and then you can drag that over to uh, devices and actually place it anywhere you want over there uh, under, you know, under the devices heading and reorder things. And then the next time you mount it, it'll appear over there again. So it's a it. It's a functional UI if you know all the magic tricks, but it is not in any way, shape, or form what I would consider uh, intuitive. Uh, you know, it, I, I have to remember how to do it every time I do it. Indeed. Yeah. So at least a wag of the finger. In That's this right. Case for UI uh, substandardness. Wonkiness. That's right. UI incons <laughs> inconsistency. I mean, it should just... In the yeah. past, it, it almost made sense to me. Hey, you got a drive? You want to make a shortcut to it? Yep. Cool. Put it on the desktop. And then if you need it, or you drag it in your login folder, there you go. It, yep. it, and and we're not quite there yet. So, well, we used to be there, but we're not quite there. But, you know, we're getting, we're getting forward, there. Two steps back. Yeah, that's right. We're getting there. There's, <laughs> there's, things that, there's things that they've made better in Leopard, like the whole SharePoints thing where you can have multiple folders and permissions. That's better than Tiger, right? Better than 10.4, yep. but, you know. Yeah, we're getting better. So uh, on to David. Actually, our first sponsor for oh, this show is Circus Ponies with Notebook at circusponies.com. Now, Notebook is an electronic notebook application. You start this program and then within it, you can create multiple files. And each of those files starts its life looking like a standard notebook. And you can start typing in hierarchical view. And then from there, you can pull in uh, pictures, PDFs, uh, different types of files. You can annotate these pictures. You can annotate PDFs. Uh, it really is an application that allows you to collect just about everything. We had a, an email from a listener, Kevin, who said uh, he won a copy of Notebook from them. 
and he finds it ridiculously handy. He never thought he would use it, uh, but now he uses it for clipping recipes while he's surfing the web, and then he can tag them and save them with a date, uh, or maybe save them with ingredients, or maybe uh, you know this is vegetarian, this is meat, this is good on the grill, this is good on a rainy day, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and organize things that way. He grabs bits and pieces of information that he'd otherwise maybe put on a sticky, and organizes all his projects, saving. All that miscellaneous stuff that's not email, that's not necessarily a Word document, but kind of collating otherwise unrelated pieces of information into a place where he can get at them and uh, and search for them. And you can search not only in one notebook, but across multiple notebooks with their multi-dex technology. Really, really handy piece of software for the people here that, that use it. Everybody that I know that uh, that uses it absolutely raves about it. And of course, you can download a 30 day free trial from CircusPonies.com. A standard license thereafter is forty nine ninety five U.S. Uh, a family pack, which gives you three licenses, is ninety nine ninety five. And if you own an older version, uh, you can upgrade uh, I believe the upgrade there's uh, I don't have it in front of me. There it is. Oh, here it is. Of course, uh, is twenty four ninety five or uh, for the family pack. It's a fifty nine ninety five upgrade. So that's all available at circusponies dot com. You can download your free copy right now. Start playing with it. And you got 30 days to decide uh, if it's the right thing for you. So notebook from circus ponies at circusponies dot com. And now, John, yes, we will move into David and Word documents. He says. Ever since installing 10.5 update, opening Word for Mac documents has been a real pain. Every time I try and open a Word doc, it opens with the text editor. I've used the default apps application to change the doc, the, the default for the doc, the dot doc, d, dot, period doc extension. And I've done a get info on one of the Word documents and set the open with entry entry to Microsoft Word and told it to use it for all documents of this type. But it still opens them with the text editor. What am I missing, John? Wow, you're right, man. I'm, yeah, I'm why? Stumbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you were tongue twisted. I was tongue twisted. Okay. Um. So the thing is here. Uh, so he's doing the right thing. So uh, the problem is, uh, and I don't know if it was ten five seven that did this. It could be, um, or at least there's a suspicion. There's a correlation, but um, so. There are a number of ways that the Mac can tell how to launch an app. And one is, you know, there's data embedded in the file. Another is the extension. And as he pointed out, default app, which which uh, default apps, uh, I would technically call that a uh, pref pane and not an application because at least uh, maybe there's a standalone version, but the one I have is in my system preferences, other, and it's called default apps. Now, when you okay. click on this, it lists a number of ways for you to tell the OS, what to do with certain types of files. So one is they have a number of sub-tabs. One is called apps. And the thing is, when you look through the apps list, on the left, it will show the application, all the applications, as far as I know, on your Mac. And this is something that's usually buried in a file deep in the OS, but this shows it to you in a nicer way. Like here, I'm clicking on Microsoft Word, and it says, okay, here are all the file types that Microsoft Word will deal with from an extension point of view. And it shows doc, docm, docx, dot, so on and so forth. Some things are not checked, though. So the one thing, like, for example, here, RTF, text, txt, are not checked. Okay. Uh, which means that it has the capability, I think, to do that, but it's, it's been taken by somebody else. So one place to look in default app is the apps tab. Now, the other is the extensions tab. Now, I think he mentioned he did some of this, but I don't think he's done all of these. So the second tab is the extensions tab, and that shows every extension that the Mac is aware of. 
And if we look here, I'm going to look at DOC, which uh, is one of the ones that he could be dealing with. If I click on that, it says default application, Microsoft Word. Okay. Now, there's some others, DOCK, DOCM, DOCX. Uh, in this case, on my machine, it shows all of them as Microsoft Word, 12.1.0. But in his, it could be different. So look through both of those uh, sections of default apps. There may be an inconsistency. We've, we've had uh, people write in saying, uh, like I remember one that was really good. It was actually, I think, some weird application on somebody's machine actually changed the DOC to like DO capital C. Or some, it, it, it basically screwed something up in one of those lists, and he was never able to launch an app properly until I suggested the same thing I just mentioned now, which is look through both lists, and he's like, you know what? I noticed that. No, I'm sorry. It was an HTM doc. And, and one of the HTM extensions in the extensions list from default apps was pointing at the wrong browser. He was getting aggravated because anytime he clicked on a certain link, it always launched Safari or Firefox or whatever. Not what he expected, but all other times it launched the other browser. So interesting. Okay. It is, uh, it's it's a, a great little preference pane, and uh, it has way more detail that you... I mean, you could spend an evening looking for all the extensions and, Shall <laughs> and we? what they do. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to. Okay, so, well, then, uh, then, I'll, then I'll throw in my two cents here. And I think what you just recommended, John, is the place to start, because what I'm about to talk about won't solve anything that's, that's broken there. But if you try that and it looks okay, and David David's email seemed to indicate that he had at least you know ventured down that path, uh, the next thing that I would try is all of this is tied to the Spotlight database, right? Uh, in 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 one way or another, and as we've seen, that can get corrupted. It can start pointing to the wrong place. So you set it to Microsoft Word. And you pull Microsoft Word out of this database of applications that exist there. But if when it goes to use it, it can't find it or it's confused about it. Well, then it's not going to work right. Uh, so I recommend deleting and then letting the system rebuild the spotlight database on your on your root volume. Now, you can do that one of two ways. You can do it from the command line and the command is MDUtil space dash capital E space slash which is the slash underneath the question mark the the normal slash uh that that will erase that tells mdutil which is the the program that manages all of this to erase the capital the dash capital e the its database on the the root volume this is not deleting the entire root volume mdutil only messes with the spotlight database so that's one way to do it the other way to do it much simpler is to go and get onyx uh, or one of your other favorite Mac OS 10 utilities and go and get that and download it, tell it, remove the spotlight database on or rebuild the spotlight database on this volume and it will go and erase it. And then spotlight goes and crunches for a while and rebuilds it. And hopefully between what John talked about and what I'm talking about here, uh, David, your problem is uh, is solved. Yep. Guaranteed. John, we get more than our fair share of questions from people asking, where do I go if I want to start learning how to program on the Mac? Uh, mm -hmm. and, in, and in fact, this week we got that question from Jacob and then Jacob answered his own question. Uh, so I wanted to, to share that answer. Jacob found a website called Masters of the Void. Now it's masters-of-the-void.com. And it is a Mac programming tutorial for beginners. It literally, and I have not gone through it yet, 
but I, I want to. I, I've I've done some C programming, but I've never done any uh, Objective C, and and certainly not using the Mac development tools. Uh, but it walks you through from step one. It is built for someone who has never programmed before, uh, and walks you through very simply the process of creating a Mac app, your first Mac app. Uh, and it, it's a take on on the whole C thing because there's the void is is the uh, is the type that you declare when you are expecting not to pass or receive uh, any data. Right? Is that right, John? Let's see, am I am I right on that? Go on. <laughs> I'm not sure how to take that answer. Uh, so that that's, I was distracted. Ah, so. okay. All right. Anyway, we'll assume that what I said is correct. And if it's not, then we'll have all kinds of people mm. uh, telling us. And that's great. Uh, so masters of the void.com. We'll put a link in the show notes, of course, but, uh, but thank you, Jacob. This is a, a great place to start you know, other places. And we were talking about this in, in the pre-show, John, uh, another great place is Apple developer, uh, the ADC, right? At developer.apple.com. But I, I right. think you're going to have that's an, what I was looking at. OK, OK. I think you're going to have an easier time actually getting started here, whereas developer.apple.com, from what I've seen, is a resource for people that are already programming and and want to kind of absorb what it is that it takes to program either on the Mac or on the iPhone, which are two different but but uh, very similar platforms in that mm-hmm. they share the same development uh, environment and and they're both uh well, the iPhone, certainly you're in Objective-C and, and on the Mac, you certainly can be and Apple prefers you to be. Yep. And uh, but so the thing is with the with the developer program, there, there are different levels and you get different things. And, and I think I'm with you in that it, I don't know if I'd go exclusively to Apple to learn how to start programming. Right. Right. Um, and, and there are many, many. I mean, you know, if you've walked in a bookstore lately, if people even still do that sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> or go to Amazon or or even through Apple, I'm sure you can get the books. But, uh, you know, there are plenty of tuto- online tutorials, you know, including what we mentioned uh, and books and stuff like that. They kind of gently guide you through things. I would say my general guidance is, you know, get get into a program that lets you uh, have access to documents describing the environment. But Almost, uh, almost always, you, you got to have sample programs that you can take the tools, look at, and tear apart, so you can understand how the heck they work. And I think, uh, short of building things up from scratch, which you know, I think you and I kind of did, Dave, back in our back heyday. In the day. Sure, you know, you had AppleSoft Basic. You kind of knew what it did. Let me write some software. The worst that could happen is I'll destroy my computer or crash the inner tubes or whatever. Yeah, there were no um, inner tubes at that point. <laughs> uh, well, rudimentary ones, but correct. There was a way to communicate, but uh, yeah, in general, and and you could blow up your hardware. I still remember, fondly remember the days of, uh, you know, where you could write values to peripherals, and if if they weren't correct, oh, yeah. they would. Remember that? No, there were yeah. some hacks for old analog monitors where if you put the wrong value in the wrong register, you're yeah. like, oh, okay, I'll I'll blow up now. Thanks. Yeah, got it. No problem. <laughs> so yeah. anyways, with ADC or Apple Developer Connection, there there are different memberships. So so the basic is online membership which is free. Then they have a student uh, select and premier member and those different levels. Uh, and the cost ranges from nine ninety nine to four ninety nine to thirty four ninety nine. And depending on what you choose, you can get a WWDC ticket, which obviously with the premier member for thirty five hundred bucks a year, you get one. OK, <laughs> but well, then they have other things. Software seeding program. Yeah. Uh, the top two tiers, you can get software seeds uh, tech support. They have a number of incidents coding head starts. And, you know, it, 
I don't know what that is. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. So I'm looking here and they say coding head starts uh, as a student member. You get introductory videos only actually as an online member as well. If you, if you pay some serious dough, you get coding head starts. I'm going to assume that sample code or videos or handholding that gets you up and running. You, you so it do. sounds like With- the select membership may be a good place to start. If you're if you're serious about learning how to program on on the Mac, I I, I would agree actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, you do. You get you get uh, with the select membership, you get those coding head starts. Again, it's not day one. Here's how to program in C, but it's here's how to use C to interact with these different libraries that you'll need to use to make the Mac dance right. and sing and, and the iPhone too. Right. The, the other thing you get with Select and Premiere. Uh, and you get different amounts of them because you're paying yes. more, but you get hardware discounts, right? So you can get significant yep. discounts in hardware and you also can get uh, support incidents. So if you've got some issue with your code and you just you're tearing your hair out, you can actually get on the on the phone with an engineer and, and go through it. This is also something, as I was telling John earlier, if you're doing any sort of development for the Mac or the iPhone and Apple, trust mm-hmm. me, they don't pay me to say this. Uh, I paid full price for my WWDC ticket last week. But if you have any issues at all, they have labs, you know, they've got sessions all day where they're teaching you. things. Right. But they have interact interactive labs where you literally go and sit down with an Apple engineer and say, look, here's my problem. Let me show it to you. And they'll go through and do just about whatever it takes to at least get to the bottom of it. Now, if it's a bug nice. in Apple code, uh, then, you, you know, th- that that's the kind of thing that they're very interested in fixing. They, they you know, they're not egotistical and saying, well, it's our code and it's perfect. You know, the, but they're not they're also not going to fix it that day and push out an OS release for you. Right. You know, right, there, right. there is a process they go through. But it is very valuable. Uh, and I went through something uh, earlier cool. earlier last week. Yeah. Okay. So and to wrap up. The list I see in front of me, so they, uh, I don't know if it's the same thing, Dave, but on the list I see in front of me, they have something called compatibility labs, and maybe that's something extra, mm-hmm. where you get to hang in there, uh, where, where I guess a lot of times, yeah, before you release an app to, to the wild, I, I think Apple has labs where they have lots of different machines where you can bring your software and they'll test it exactly. on the spot. Uh, I would assume on machines that simulate, you know, or, or just are different environments, different versions of Mac OS 10, just to make sure you don't have any, you know, OS dependent code and stuff. And then, yeah, they also list hardware purchase program, which I understand is fairly generous. Yeah. Select members get one per year. Premier members, which are paying again, the thirty four ninety nine, get 10 systems a year. So that's probably a, you know, enterprise. Uh, or if you're just a, a massive geek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, West writes in, and this is a question, also a question we hear a lot. Hello, Mac Geek Gab. Why does it take several days for the podcast to show up in the iTunes feed? I see the podcast on Tuesday when I go to MacObserver.com, but the Mac Geek Gab podcast, podcast does not show up in iTunes for days after that, sometimes until Thursday. I even click the update button on the podcast window in iTunes. Still no go. All right, West uh, and everyone. Here's what happens. John and I, it's Monday, right? And typically this is how it works. Monday evening, John and I record the show. We record to AIFF, so uncompressed audio. When we finish the show, I convert it to MP3, post it live, and and make it live on the site. So you can, within, usually within about 15 minutes after the show is finished, you can go through and get the audio of the show in MP3 format. However... The version that appears in iTunes, if you search for Mac Geekab in the iTunes podcast directory, is the AAC feed. So after the MP3 is up, 
I email a file off to Michael Johnston, who in my, and this is Michael of iPhone Alley. You hear us mention him in every show. Thank you, Michael. He takes the file and goes through it, listens through, finds all the links and images to create the enhanced AAC version of the show. And that takes him a day sometimes, sometimes two. Usually, usually he's done in about a day. And then he pushes that up uh, to the server. As soon as that's up, then it appears in your iTunes and most of you download it. For most people, that's fine. But if you want the show immediately, you, the MP3 version, and you're willing to forego having the links and the images that are in the enhanced feed, you can go to MacGeekGab.com and that'll route you through to a page that will show you the URL for the uh, feed of the MP3 version. What you do, you'll see it. It says subscribe to MP3. Now, if you want to do this in iTunes, what you do is you right click on uh, the XML there, copy the link, go into iTunes and go to the advanced menu and choose subscribe to podcast and then paste the link in there. That will subscribe you to the MP3 version. Uh, and that's the trick for getting the the geek gab the moment it comes out. But again, you're, you're going to forego the, the AAC uh, lusciousness. Yeah, but if, if you need your fix, you got sometimes, it. you know, people are. Hey, man. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, so that that's uh, hopefully that answers that question at least uh, for a little while until we get some more people that uh, that ask yep. again, and then we'll then we'll answer it again. And then, of course, the show notes they appear shortly thereafter. Yeah, usually on about the same schedule. Yeah, John yeah, John usually. goes through and does the show notes and puts the links there on the web page so that they're there for everyone to see. All right, In, including extra bonus links. I that's right. Yeah, you do. You Whatever find extra I bonus links. Happen to find interesting at the time. <laughs> Moving on. Who's next? Uh, who do you want to be next? Let's do Mark. Let's do an audio comment because we haven't done an audio comment tonight. Go. And I could use a break. Hey, John and Dave. Um, this is uh, Mark from Los Angeles. Um, a couple of days ago, I left you another question. But um, as um, 2009 begins, I'm starting to um, clean up the clutter in my um, hard drive, and I uh, came across a, a question. I uh, wanted to see if this is possible, but um, I have a, a Lassie or Lacy um, external hard drive that I use, and at the end of the year, I will transfer movies and pictures and uh, so on from the previous year and then delete it from my uh, G5's hard drive so that I can have some um, extra memory. For 2009, and um, one of the programs I ended up getting recently was Carbon Copy, and I wanted to find out if it was possible. I have a 500 gigabyte external hard drive, and um, I already have um, some folders on it that I have saved from previous years of uh, downloading pictures and movies onto it and music. And I was wondering, um, is it possible to partition it into two? Um, I guess schemes. Um, I'm not, I have it open right now. I opened up Utility, and I have uh, a uh, volume scheme. Is two partitions, Untitled One and Untitled Two. Is it possible to keep what I have saved on it right now onto, um, you know, Untitled One, whatever I, you know, I'm going to name it something, and then is it possible to have within Untitled Two? Uh, my carbon copy. I want to um, copy my hard drive from my computer 
using carbon copy onto an external hard drive, and I was wondering if it was possible to do that within two partitions so that I can still drag and drop pictures and music to one partition and then the other partition have my carbon copy. So um, I apologize for the long message, and um, perhaps that's something you could uh, address uh, down the road on one of your shows. That'd be great. All right, Mark. So the short answer is yes. Oh, yeah, great. Thank you very much. Okay, yeah. next question. Awesome, dude. Yeah, no, You're good, man. Uh, you bet. Uh, so, no, What's the, he trying to do here? The, well, the idea is he's got a drive. It's already partitioned into two partitions, and he's got he's using one as, let's call it just a, an archive, where he's manually controlling what's copied there and what's removed from there. And then on the other partition, he wants to use a tool like Carbon Copy Cloner to... Uh, to make that drive the destination, presumably, for his boot drive or, or something else that, that he just wants to have backed up on a regular schedule. And that will work fine. Now, it's worth talking about this from a partitioning standpoint anyway, because many of you out there might have very large external drives. And, you know, I found for me, after I went and got a time capsule, you know, I had partitioned some drives to do exactly what he's talking about. And then now it's like, well... You know, these drives are sort of being used for different purposes. Uh, what can I do without losing everything uh, that I don't want to lose? Now, can, can I ask, though, because it sounds like from what you're saying and what he said, uh, I just want to. Uh, I'll spit it out. Mm -hmm. It sounds like one purpose here is to create a drive for archiving data storage only. Right. It sounds like another intent here is to create a bootable Right. which typically Carbon Copy Cloner, although you could certainly use it to do just data backups, among other tools, Carbon Copy Cloner, one of the nice things it does is it can create a bootable partition. So did I just hear him saying that he wants to create kind of this hybrid That's drive right. that does both? Uh, okay, I, uh, again, I, I thought I heard that. I just want to make sure because nope. I typically shy away because to, to me, partitioning includes, uh, introduce a complexity and, and, you know, potential disaster but i understand why you want to do this and continue okay well, okay so so for me here, here's here's what i do and here's why i have uh, one of my drives one of my external drives is a 500 gig drive now i want to do exactly what what mark's talking about here but i don't want to if, if i'm going to use carbon copy cloner well then every time it runs which i have it run every day it would wipe out whatever's on the external drive and clone my boot volume from my Mac over to it. And that's great. But my boot volume on my Mac uses maybe, you know, 100 to 150 gigs. OK, I don't want to waste the extra 350 gigs that's sitting out there available on my external drive just because I'm doing this carbon copy cloner thing. Uh, so what I've done is I've done a partition. And I set that partition to 175 gigs, and that's the one to which I back up with Carbon Copy Cloner every day. So I've got a totally bootable copy of my drive, of my boot drive every day. But I also have 350 gigs or 325 gigs approximately that I can use for uh, archive and you know data storage. But here comes the trick. There might be some people out there that are already using their 500 gig drive as one partition and now want to do this. Or you could be in a situation like me and you say, gosh, you know, I'm starting to push that 150 gig limit uh, before I hit 175. Maybe I should make my partition larger. But traditionally, 
to change the partition size, you have to wipe out everything and start from scratch. There are tools, though, John, that let you change the partition size on the fly, dynamically. They're not, they're not flawless. Well, well, with, with some caveats. With some caveats. There you go. Yeah. Because so the, the thing is, I guess, is that you, you, I guess your hope would be that the way this space is laid out is that the, the partitions are distinct enough that whatever tool wants to fiddle with them can, uh, right? Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, the, they, there needs to be enough room on the drive to move things around. Right. So you've got to have enough room in one partition or the other to sort of slide that bar that 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 separates them. And and it's not a, a trivial operation. Uh, so but the idea is there is software out there. The two pieces that I know of that come to mind immediately are iPartition and Drive Genius. Both of these will allow you to use a graphical interface to non-destructively re, repartition your drive again with those caveats of. As long as there's enough space and the way it's laid out, uh, the drive will support it. Now, you can also do it from the command line. Disk utility, and I believe all of 10.5, but certainly current builds of 10.5. Yeah, I think it was late builds of 10.4 and all of 10.5. So late Tiger, all of Leopard. There is the option in the disk util command to resize volume. And you can use this to repartition from the command line. And we can post a link to some command line instructions for it, but it's not the kind of thing I recommend doing. Repartitioning your drive is about the most dangerous operation you'll ever do to live data on a hard drive. Which is why I don't. I really don't like doing it. Yeah, but I've, I've had it. more than one occasion Any, where it, things went bad, man. Well, here's the thing. Anybody that's installed boot camp has done a live repartition on their yes. hard drive. Right. And and that's why Apple built this into disk utility, because they had to create a way for you to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, you know, I mean, it, we hear very few reports of people installing boot camp and having it just totally wipe out their, their boot drive. You know, yeah. I, mean, well, I haven't I haven't done that. So. OK, uh, I'm but playing it safe, man. It is doable. It, it, it you know, it is a relatively safe operation. It will it will not let you do it if it doesn't find the appropriate uh, scenario for it to be successful. But right. uh, but, you know, it's the kind of thing where if your machine, you know, the power cuts out in the middle of this operation, your machine dies, all, all bets are off. Uh, you know, you're 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 kind of floating on your own. And this is an operation that many that may take many hours to do. Uh, so your uh, your mileage may vary, but uh, but it is doable. So so we, we we leave it at that unless you have more to say. And then that then, then that's not where we leave it. All I would say, kids, is always make a backup because. The worst that could happen with a repartition is that you destroy everything. That, that, well, that, maybe not everything, but it, you, you may get in a state where you, you wish you, you hadn't done it. So That is anyways, the worst. <laughs> so always have a current backup. But I, I don't know. I, I tend to put myself in situations, Dave, where I don't have to partition. And now that I think about it, my desktop machine, both my desktop and my laptop, one drive is one partition. That, that's how I roll. It, yeah. Again, as drives get bigger and bigger, I, I think there is again reason to to partition. And I mean, I spelled out one, but but there are others. Yep. yep. So you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, should we do Douglas before we talk about cable modems here, or is there is there somebody else? Left? Uh, well, we got Douglas and Jim, and uh, no, maybe yeah, Douglas. Okay. Go for Douglas. Okay. Douglas writes. 
I had a strange problem that happened to me. I was importing my digital files from my compact flashcard via my Firewire 800 card reader. As they were being imported, the finder froze and the files stopped importing. When I relaunched the finder, there were ghost files left on my computer. I've included a JPEG of what this looks like that, of course, none of you will see. I can't toss the files in the trash. I keep getting this message in the JPEG I sent you. I've tried, and the, and the message says... Some of the items you are moving are in use by another application. Moving the items can cause problems with the application using them. Are you sure you want to move these items? I've tried to I've tried rebuilding permissions, safe boot, also target mode, but I can't delete these files. I keep getting that message in the JPEG. What's strange is when I put the computer into target mode, I thought for sure I'd be able to delete them from another computer, but no. Ooh. Yeah. All right. So um, go ahead. I'm going to put the hammer down. All right. <laughs> Hit it, rubber No, duck. I'm serious, because... <laughs> what? You said you were putting the hammer down, so I thought oh. we were going into convoy lingo. <laughs> rubber duck. Um, terminal RM-F. Maybe. Or first, you may want to do a... C, uh, uh, you may want to check the uh, permissions. You may want to do a CH mod on the file, if you can even find it, and uh, CH mod it so that it's it's totally accessible. Read, write, execute, and all that stuff. And then try an RM-F. Is that that's kind of putting the hammer down? That's remove force, correct? Yeah. Let me. Let which me. Which is like a very forceful. So, so I'm just suggesting one possible thing, which I, I think I've done in the past, and sometimes this works. Sometimes, you know, if some if, if somebody's grabbed the file, then no. But place to start. Go on. All right. So let let's say these, and I'm just going to crystallize what you've mentioned here, John. Let's say these files are in your home folder in Documents in a folder called picture. No, not picture. Test. We'll just call it test. So what you're going to do is go to the command line. You're going to type CH mod space dash capital R space a plus R W X space slash volume slash users slash your short username here slash test and hit enter. Now, what you've told it to do is change the permissions on the files at the end, all of them recursively. That's what that dash capital R means. A plus RWX means let everyone read, write, and execute any files in this folder. And then, of course, you list the folder. After you do that, then you do, as John said, RM space dash lowercase f, right? Lowercase f, yes. RM. Well, I don't know what upper f does. Uh, it's, it's lower f. RM space dash f, lowercase, space, slash volume, slash users, uh, sorry, not slash volume slash users. In either case, it's just slash users. Uh, so slash users slash short username slash test slash star. And that should delete everything inside the test folder, but not the test folder itself. So that that's the way to do it. But I still don't think from the finder it's well, it might work because it could be a permissions thing. You might you might you might be right there. I, it, the other thing that that I would try. Well, check permissions, of course. Yeah, there's that too. Yeah, although check permissions is only going to go and change the permissions or check the permissions on things that Apple has installed. It's not going to go and just find permissions on random files that you've put right, out right, there. Right. Yeah, it's it's focused on on system and Apple stuff. Yeah. Um, the, 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 I guess the other thing I'd do, John, is boot into single user mode, command S, and then issue exactly those same commands that we just said. That the, well, you can skip the ch mod because you're running as root at that point. It doesn't right. You typically doesn't you are matter. All powerful. Usually, yeah. 
Um, for the most part. Yeah, and then you just RM slash F. Or it's RM dash F. And then, uh, yeah, and you know, I don't recall off the top of my head. Uh, we got to dig Dave or if anybody knows off the top of their head, there are utilities that will tell you what apps are, are oh. holding. Do you know? Yeah. LSOF. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So OF uh, open. Oh, okay. No, got yeah. It. So LSOF, it is one applic. It is one executable. So altogether, no spaces, LSOF space. And then usually what I do here is I do uh, pipe, which is the character above the backslash, so shift backslash. Vertical bar. Yep, vertical bar. There you go. Pipe space, and then I use grep. G R. This is getting real geeky, folks. Whoa. G R E P space, and then I look for either the file name or the folder that it's in. What LSOF does, I'll walk you through this command. What LSOF does is it pulls out a list of every file that the system has open and tells you what application is using it. Now you don't want to have to comb through that, but the beauty is you've now taken the output of LSOF and piped it. That's what that vertical bar means. Piped it to the grep command, which searches text and it's really good at searching text. And so what we're telling grep is take what you've been, what you, what's been piped to you and search it for any lines that contain the name of the file that you're looking for. And then it's only going to spit out those lines that match that one pattern. Even if there's, you know, 100,000 lines, it's only going to spit out the one or two or however many match that pattern and show them to you. So that that could show you the app. But I, I think there's I, I think you're going to find it some system resource somewhere. Um, but, but booting into single and user mode should give you the freedom to, to yank this. Yeah. And the problem is if an app is grabbing a file, it. I don't know. If it has a file held, you're probably, no matter what you do, no matter what we suggested, will be able to delete it. Unless you kill off that app, which I think there is a kill command line, uh, right. very low-level Unix thing. I think kill-9 or whatever. There's a way to kill off apps. Now, now here you got to be extremely careful. Yes. Do not kill applications when you don't know what they are. Yeah, especially if they're... Because, well... Again, the worst that could happen is that you'll kill an app and the, the OS will come, you know, crashing, crashing down. down and, and you're com- seriously. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, don't kill apps without knowing what they do. But if you see uh, like it could be an errant, you know, like a long lost app, you know, if, if it's an application program, like well, booting in tar- be, be careful. Booting in target disk mode is the thing that kind of no, makes I agree me scratch my head. Yes. That, I agree. It, don't 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 do what I said. <laughs> unless you unless you have a system that yeah. you know you you don't really care about and you want to kill off apps at random and just see yeah. if, if they'll release data files that are stubborn otherwise yeah. what dave said is is definitely the way to go yeah. so yeah i you know i i it's sort of an anecdotal thing i spend a lot of time in the terminal and sometimes i'll go to eject a disk and it'll say oh you can't eject that disk files are in use like no i don't have any <sighs> files in use and then what I'll I'll go and run LSOF and what I'll realize is that it's me. If you navigate, let's say I have a drive called external, right? And so I navigate to slash in the terminal slash volume slash external. And then I have a cursor just sitting there, not doing anything, but sitting somewhere in that tree. Well, it holds a lock on that and will not let me eject mm-hmm. that drive until I get out of there or close that terminal session mm-hmm. or even just navigate elsewhere. So I do a CD space slash boom. Then, then I can eject the disc. No problem. Oh. But I, I can't do it. When I'm there. Well, so. I've sometimes seen that under windows. Yeah. It's like file in use. I'm like, Oh, I have a, a, a finder right. or a windows 
you know, finder window open, which is showing me the contents of the drive. Yep. And that's enough to make it so it doesn't want to eject it. Yep. Yeah. All right. Anyways. So, so last week, John, uh, we did the show. I was in San Francisco in my hotel room, tucked away in the Milano there. And you, of course, were in your home where you are every other week that we record this podcast pretty much any other time we've done it. And yes. we had, uh, of course, I recorded it on my end in San Francisco. This is going somewhere, folks. Uh, I recorded it on my end in San Francisco, so I sounded okay. I was on the road podcaster, Mike. But your your audio quality was was pretty crummy. I mean, it was intelligible, but certainly not to the standards that we like to hold no. ourselves. And the reason was the Skype. Uh, I record you over Skype. And so uh, if there's anything interfering with bandwidth, you won't hear it on my voice because I'm recording me locally, but you will hear it on John's. So. The presumption was that, well, Dave's in a hotel. He's got crummy bandwidth. And so it's a show. People are dogpiling. Right. So we want to talk about, and I think you're leading to this. What tools do you use to quantify the situation? Well, okay. So, you know, I just, I went through it and okay, fine. You know, whatever. It was good enough. We got the show done. uh, And, you know, we had a couple of hiccups that were completely unrelated to that, but, uh, but we got through it, you know, and, and the show, I think it actually went very well. As soon as the show was over, pilot Pete sitting in his home here in, uh, in New Hampshire pinged me and said, got time to chat. I thought, well, sure. The show's uploading. I've got plenty of time. So I called Pete on Skype. We had a video chat with pristine audio quality immediately. And that was and then. And, and so I started yep. scratching my head thinking, what the heck, man? Why couldn't I connect to John? And then John and I during the pre-show and we alluded to this a little bit last week. John was saying the night before he had had some weird little cable outage or modem the issue uh, over the yes, weekend. And to describe right. what happened was I was basically getting no connection. And so what I did, and I'll just dip my toe into the problem solving, Dave. Yep. Um, as many of you know, some cable modems will allow you to access them via a web interface from your browser to see what's up. Now, I'm fortunately with uh, uh, Optimum Online, which is Cablevision, and they, and we'll get into this later, but uh, anyways, going to their cable modem, if I go into my browser and I type in HTTP colon slash slash 192.168.100.1, which is pretty much a well-known address for what's known as a uh, Doxis cable modem, which I think they pretty much all conform to that. Yep. What is Doxis, you ask? And I'm going to tell you. It's data over cable service interface specification. And in the bad old days, the problem is you did not have a standard for cable modems. Like I remember back when I had at home, remember them? Uh, anyways, they're out of business and all my stock is worth nothing. But uh, in the bad old days, they had proprietary cable modems. Now they have a standard called Doxis, which as long as your uh, modem conforms to the standard, which deals with how the cable modem talks to the rest of the network, you're cool. So I went to the status page. And it comes up in the web browser. I have a Scientific Atlanta, which is one of the makers of these modems, and they show a status page. Now, they intentionally, which is aggravating, but we'll get around this, uh, disable a lot of features, but they show a main page which shows the name of the modem, the serial number, the MAC address, blah, blah, blah. But then it shows two important figures. One is a receive power level. One is a transmit power level. These are both represented in DBMV. All right, what is that? And let's let's talk about what these mean, right? Mm. The, the well, I'd I- like to talk about DBMV because that is a, a weird figure 
Yeah. And then to me, and I just, you know, I dug into this a little bit. It's not, it's a relative reference. And the dB is weird because dB is decibels and dB is purely a measure of a difference between two things. It has no value in and of itself. Right. Now here it's saying dBMV. And I think I looked up online and dBMV, I think is one millivolt over a 75 ohm load or something like very similar to that. So, but, but it is a value that you can use to determine what's happening. Right. And I guess the issue is that there are accepted values by the DOCSIS spec. And I guess you can dig into this a little bit, Dave. If yeah. So, like so the, you want to go on. So, so DOCSIS uh, gives you values that are reasonable. Yes. So let, let me let me sort of translate this into to layman's terms. So you've got your cable modem and it connects to the cable company and it really doesn't matter what it connects to. Right. You know, you plug it into the wire comes into your house. You plug it into the cable modem and the cable modem syncs up. We've all anybody with a cable modem has been through this. What's happening during that syncing period? What, well, many things are happening, but two important things happen. One is the cable modem syncs up to the receive signal that is being sent from the cable company to you. It also then sends a signal out and syncs up to the cable company with the signal that it's sending out. All of this is dependent on you having a minimum level of quality in your cable line. Now, uh, what happens is the modem will report these values. And as John said, if you visit 192.168.100.1 in your browser, 99% of the time you're going to get a screen. They're all going to look different because they're different companies. But what you're looking for is receive power level and send power level. And Doxis, as John explained, has some acceptable parameters on the receive power level. The published acceptable parameters are from negative 15 dBmV to positive 15 dBmV. The goal is you kind of want to hit it in the middle. My experience and zero. Yes, at zero. Correct. That's right. You want to hit it in the middle at zero. Now, my experience is that negative 15 and positive 15 are too far. If you're anywhere close to those numbers, i.e. below or above 10, so negative negative 10 or lower or positive 10 or higher, you're going to have problems. Uh, you're going to have wacky connection issues. You're going to have inconsistencies. Your life isn't going to be happy. On the upstream, i.e. the amount of power that it takes your modem to send a signal that successfully makes it to the cable company, the cable company or the DOCSIS standard again is published and it says, I believe anything lower than 56 decibel dBmV are, uh, is acceptable. Again, I say hooey. My experience, and this hooey. is this is from me. <laughs> this is from John uh, recently, and this is also from many clients that I dealt with over the years uh, in my consulting practice. Is anything that is above forty-eight or forty-nine, and you're in trouble. Some cable modems are built better than others and can take it to different degrees. But if you see any number in the fifties on your upstream, you want to solve this problem. Now. And, and that is, I got to say, counterintuitive because most people would think more power is better, man. I right. got the power. Well, in this case, it means the modem is working too hard. You got it. And as you pointed out, once you reach, and I found the mid 50s or even the lower 50s, yeah. means, dude, you're probably working a bit too hard and there, there's a problem elsewhere. Yep. Uh, so bigger power with this figure, and, and we'll. we'll go into the specifics in a moment, but the lower this figure, 
counterintuitively, the better. Right. And as they've said, receive power level. I'm looking now in my mind now that I fix my system, zero is probably about the right value. So yeah, continue. Any I've seen I've seen receive power level anywhere from you know negative seven to positive seven without any troubles at all. Anything. Yeah, and I see that I got point five and points negative point seven, but it's right. hovering around below one in either direction. So yeah, well, you can, that's like, probably best. Like I said, as long as you're not in the double digits, so you can be you know eight or even right. nine. Uh, negative or positive, you're okay based on my experience. You get above that, you got problems. So go check this out. Now, if you see numbers uh, that start to alarm you, you ask, what can you do to fix it? Well, and what, I will tell you, or you could tell us. Well, I'll, I'll tell them what I told you, even though you told me I was a, a, a raving maniac. Um, I did, because, uh, and, and the reason I told Dave he was a raving maniac, and just in my defense, because um, Dave is sometimes right, <laughs> was that the modem page, there is a status that says cable modem status, and it said operational. In my experience with my cable modem, when it says that, and sometimes it doesn't, and that, I think, is sure. when things are horribly, horribly wrong. Like, I'll get messages like, uh, you know, resyncing upstream or acquiring new values. If you see a message in the status that is anything other than okay or operational, then you may want to either just make sure everything's hooked up or call your cable company. Right. Right. But yeah, the problem here is that it reports that it's operational. And I say, hooey, if the it numbers lies. aren't, if the numbers aren't right, you're not going to be happy. And John wasn't happy. Right. So, uh, so the first thing to look for is anything that's adding signal interference. Now, We've all seen cable splitters. In fact, in most cases, you have to have splitters, right? Because you've only got one cable signal coming into your home. Yes. And you want to go to your cable modem and then off to your TVs or whatever. And depending on where your cable modem is placed, you might have multiple splitters. Well, here's how splitters work. If you look on your splitter, typically each node of the splitter. So if you have a signal coming in and then it's being split into two, each splitter splits into it loses seven decibels typically mm -hmm. a splitter is built to lose three and a half on one ah, side okay. and three and a half on the other so if your power level is at let's say 54 on the upstream and you get rid of that splitter then your power level is going to go down to about 50 because you're removing three and a half decibels of resistance or interference from the signal but what, but you say, well, you know, let's say I, it's the first splitter in line. I've got to have something. Well, you can either from the cable company or Radio Shack, uh, you can get what they call a tap splitter. And what that does is instead of balancing it evenly with three and a half on one side and three and a half on the other, you can get it with one dB loss on one side and six on the other. And then what you do is from the one dB side, you plug that into your cable modem and the six side, you plug that into perhaps an amplifier because your TVs can take amplifiers in most cases uh, or take an amplified signal. In most cases, the cable modem in most cases cannot. Uh, they'll tell you it can't. I've done it with one and it's worked, but, but it's certainly not recommended. So. You know, checking your line and, and looking at the signal path and trying to get the shortest path from the pole to your cable modem is going to result in the best uh, signal strength and, and, of course, the best experience for you. So that's that's number one. Uh, a number two cause of interference, heat on the cable line. The hotter it gets outside, 
the more that line's going to expand and the more interference you're going to have. I've seen heat increase a in fact i had this on our list to talk about and before. or humidity i would say yeah that's right I, i've had this on our list to talk about for a couple of weeks john because my brother went through exactly what you went through uh several weeks ago when it started getting warmer outside and uh and and heat started to expand and his numbers started going up and he was sitting right at tolerance level so he went through this uh, and basically about a week and a half ago finally got it all sorted out and then and then you had your you know your issues start so there's that and then mm-hmm. obviously breaks in the line if there's if there's breaks or even damage to the line well of course that's going to cause uh, additional interference and you, you got to get and, that taken care of and i got to mention not where i live right now but where i used to live in in good old weston yep we had a 300-foot run from the pole sure. to the house. I'll give you one guess as to what was chewing on that thing. Oh, everything, in the, everything in the woods. Well, yeah. the squirrels were having a... a and yeah. I don't know. It, it, people have told me this. Squirrels uh, seem to like the taste of, of coax. and uh, I don't know what's <laughs> up with them, man. But, um, yeah. So, so, so in my case, what I did to fix the problem, can I... Yeah, can take I it. Yep. Delve? So what I did, so, so initially, as you heard, I thought Dave was insane because my cable owner said it was operational. And I did some occasional speed tests, and they seemed to be somewhat normal, though, as Dave indicated. A speed test is probably not a really good test of, of line reliability. you really got to look at these power levels. But w- what I noticed, and then I traced through my house, so I thought I had only one splitter. So I have the cable coming into the house. As, as Dave pointed out, most people got to have at least one split. So I have one splitter. Minus three and a half dB on each side. One to my TV room, to the TiVo. One going upstairs. And what I thought was that I only had one run uh, upstairs, and then to to the room where the computer I'm, I'm on now is. As a matter of fact, there was a splitter in the attic. Now there was nothing connected to it, but as we pointed out, just the fact that there was a extra lead on this meant that it was losing three point five dB. So I went to Radio Shack, got an F connector a female to female f right. connector or a coupler as you as you would call it and guess what it went uh, the uh signal level transmit went down about three and a half db huh isn't that weird but then i also replaced the one downstairs because i have one uh, there's also another f connector uh or a coupler in the basement and i'd replace that because you know over time if they're exposed they'll corrode and you know weird stuff could happen so well, why the heck not replace it but the thing is so before this uh fiasco um or this uh, event <laughs> whatever you want to call it my my transmit power level was at like 54 or 50 almost 55 dbmv which as we pointed out is is not, quite a bit too high not acceptable it's hot yeah. Even though the modem lied and said operational, that was BS. Now with my my things uh, my uh, you know splitter replaced, I now have you know fresh connectors in places. I am now at forty seven point four dBmV, which most people would agree that's where I want to be exactly. And my receive is at zero point zero. So that's great. Cool. Okay. So and, and the one thing the guy at the store mentioned, which I had not heard of, and just something I haven't tried this. You may want to try this, but he also pointed out if you get, uh, which in other realms, I've seen say terminating resistor, apparently terminating resistor, which uh, is something that you put on the end. And, you know, this is used in other realms, but I guess it caps off uh, otherwise, 
you know, a, a, a connection or whatever that really doesn't need to be there. So I have not tried this, but the, the guy at the store, I don't know. I'll, I'll try it out. So you may want to cap one of your splitters with a terminating resistor as an initial way to eliminate the loss. But, you know, if you don't need a splitter, in my opinion, get rid of it and just put in one of these F couplers. And uh, But it was an awesome exercise. Cool. I think we're getting some uh, some stutter here, John. Yep, yep, yep. Hey, uh, Up that old hard drive is... Uh, it's, it, and then you got you got Oxus Three, which I guess has multiple channels, and we'll talk about that more, right? Yeah, well, we already did. We got, talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but it's you know, I I, I scaled back. I, I went back to the absolute lowest plan that you can get from uh, really from Comcast. Now, yeah, I get twelve guaranteed, twelve megabits down and two megabits up, and uh, I, I'm going to kill the music here because it's causing stutters, and I don't like them. Um, I get twelve down. And, is it is it going to settle in? Twelve down. <laughs> Hang on one second, folks. All right, I let it spin down. But yeah, I I went down. I'm, I'm back at twelve. Like I said on the show, I, I don't need twenty two megabit downstream and five megabit upstream. I I get twelve and two, and I can burst to mm-hmm. almost twenty and almost four or five now. So I'm I'm happy. Now, can there you I, go. Can I start the music again? Is it going to freak out on me? I, I hope mm-hmm. not. <sighs> Freaking, it's Speaking Intel, of freak out, Intel OS 10 buffers. So anyway, to wrap up the cable thing, get your splitters out of the way. Go, you know, pare down to the minimum number you need, especially between the cable line and the cable modem. Uh, try the terminating resistors if, for some reason, you have to have splitters with open ends. But really, you're better off paring them down. Uh, yes. Re, you know, replace the line. But but before that, I would replace the cable modem if you're still having problems because I have seen some modems on the same line report. Uh, you know, yeah. 10 dB difference from each other because they're mass produced and they're affected by well, lightning. Well, to be honest, I'm looking at the, I mean, on the one hand, Dave, I'm amazed at the, the small size of the uh, cable modem I have. Yeah. On the other hand, I conclude it's a cheap piece of crap. Yeah, exactly. Sorry to be blunt, but well, they all you, you know, are. it's mass produced yeah. and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm a, a power surge or something. Um, who the heck knows? But anyway, right. so, um, but you know, at this point, Dave, 206 666 Geek. That's how you contact us. That's how all oh, these people man. that called into the show contact us. But you know, if I was alphabetically challenged, I would do 4335. That's right. And then you can email your audio comments to feedback at macgeekgab.com. Now, did you say feedback at macgeekgab.com, Dave? John, I said feedback at macgeekgab.com, and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. <laughs> Nor will I try. <laughs> Mac and Geek- Skype. Yeah, go ahead. Well, Skype, you know, it. it it's back. It's back, baby. So Skype, uh, Mac Geek Gab. That's right. And you can, of course, uh, visit the show notes and everything else at MacGeekGab.com. Cashfly provides all our bandwidth at Cashfly.com. iPhoneAlley.com is, as we mentioned, Michael Johnston's home. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, BB Edit 9 from Barebones Software, PDF Pen from Smile on My Mac, and Notebook from Circus Ponies all through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. And with that, John, it is a wrap. iTunes. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Comments, iTunes comments. You know? Absolutely. Comments, ratings, and lots of love. We dig them. Uh, Twitter. John F. Braun, Dave Hamilton, Pilot P. Check it out. Mac Geekka. 
Oh, that one too. Or Mac Observer, right? They're, they're all there. But don't get caught. Made up. 